Welcome to episode 34 of Work and Play, the podcast of Constangie, Brooks, Smith & Profit, where we give you insights and tips that you can use at your company or in your practice. I'm your host, Bill McMahon, and with me today is our guest, Jackie Johnson. Jackie, how are you doing? I'm great. How are you, Bill? Doing good. Doing good. Uh, first of all, welcome to the podcast, uh, and relatedly, welcome to the firm. Uh, you joined uh, somewhat recently, I want to say in the past couple months. That's right. I joined September 1st, and it's been great. Awesome. Awesome. Well, welcome uh, on both accounts. And Jackie, if you could, uh, the, the topic we're talking about today is trade secrets, which I know is something that's near and dear to your heart. <laughs> but if you could just give our listeners kind of a little introduction and little background about yourself. Sure. Absolutely. Um so I have been practicing employment law my entire career, and for the majority of the last couple of decades have focused really on unfair competition, which you know encompasses trade secret theft, uh, restrictive covenants. I you know I call myself sometimes the non-compete queen um, because I nerd out over multi-state non-compete issues. Um, that, that's you know. catchy. I like it. Yeah, yeah. Well, it can be the non-compete diva, depends on the day, nice. um, or but just flat out geek. Um, but yeah, I litigate, um, I advise, I draft agreements, I um, help help companies position themselves in the best possible place um, before litigation to um, both be able to pursue uh, unfair competition matters if they need to defend themselves against such matters, and generally, you know, run a tight ship. So. Um, that that's kind of what I do, you know, not a hundred percent of the time, but at this point it's a good 70% of my practice. Right, so. Perfect. Perfect. And th- this topic is timely and it kind of flows from the last couple episodes we had. We, we did our last episodes were a two part series on non-compete agreements and traps for the unwary in terms of drafting those and enforcing them. And so we thought it made sense to follow that up with, uh, you know, a dedicated episode to trade secrets to kind of really flush that out. And our last guest was our, uh, the other co-chair of the trade secrets and unfair competition practice group, Ken Carlson. Um, and, and you are the other co-chair of that practice group. So, uh, yep. Perfect. Uh, well, I, I want to start with something extremely basic um, and obviously for folks that have had experience with trade secrets, this is a question that, uh, you know, you always have to encounter and one you're more familiar with, but for folks that have not encountered trade secrets, uh, it, you know, it, it, it may be something that is worth really flushing out a bit. Um, and that is simply, what is a trade secret? Um, you know, Bill, you know, it's, it is, in fact, a basic question, right. but it is a pivotal question. And, you know, I can I can explain and will kind of a generic definition of a trade secret. But in practice, uh, there's trade secrets in all kinds of industries, all kinds of businesses. It's not just, you know, the Coca-Cola formula. But um, Right. And that's like the typical example that people think of as a, okay, here's an example of one. 
um, the Coca-Cola recipe, but then how do we know if we have one and, and if we do have one, what is it, you know? Exactly. So the law, and, you know, we've got various laws on trade secrets. We have the Federal Defend Trade Secret Act, the Texas Uniform Trade Secret Act, um, and then a variety of other states that have enacted some form of the Uniform Trade Secret Act. But at, at the end of the day, you know, trade secrets will down to um, a piece of information or a compilation of information that is not generally known to the public and that gives um, the owner economic benefit from being able to use it um, and other people would be unfairly competitively um, advantaged if they were to have it. Um, and it requires that the owner of the trade secret take reasonable steps to maintain the secrecy of the information and that the information be not something that can be independently derived. So. Um, it's essentially things that you as a company or an individual, perhaps an individual can own trade secrets, but um, right. that you've invested in you know, time and resources in developing um, that if someone else had it, that they could be competitively uh, advantaged, that they would gain a competitive advantage. Um, and so that the law will protect essentially your investment in whatever it is. And, you know, it could be a formula. Uh, like a recipe, like the Coca-Cola formula. Right. It could be a process on how your company um, achieves, you know, it's your products or services, whatever you're doing, how, how you know, the process by which you create the, the thing. Uh, it can be a compilation, which means things that might otherwise individually be part of the public domain become a trade secret if they're part of a compilation that you invested time and resources in creating. So like a client database um, that contains, you know, some, you know, when you get into like client lists, oftentimes the person that's defending against a theft of trade secret would say, well, it's, you know, it's no secret who, who your clients are. Right. Um, exactly. You know, like and, you, can, you can recreate the list in some manner, in other words. Right. But then the bigger question, though, is is, is it the compilation in and of itself with all of its added information that might be tagged along as far as who the contact person is, you know, what, you know, what's their buying history, what are their preferences, how much profit are you, you know, do you get off of that, of their deal based on the terms and conditions of their agreement, you know, little things like, you know, if you've got a database that stores you know, information about the contact person that you can use to, you know, develop the business and the goodwill, like, you know, how many kids they have, their birthday, et cetera, like right, that, you know, right, all right. of that stuff, a compilation of that obviously is something you can't readily get, you know, from a phone book or just driving down the street. So it's the compilation that can be the trade secret, even though like the identity of a particular client might not be. So, okay. um, yeah, trade secrets can take various forms, and it's part of what keeps this area of law um, always evolving and very interesting. Absolutely. I appreciate the background on that in terms of kind of flushing out the concept a little bit. Um, let's say you're you know, a company that hasn't you know, had experience litigating one of these types of cases before, um, and <laughs> this sounds kind of weird, but you don't even know if you have any trade secrets. Um, what should you do and what should you be thinking about in, in kind of taking an inventory of that? 
Does that make sense? Right. Sure. Absolutely. I guess, you know, from, from a very initial um, point of view, um, if you're a company wanting to really get a grasp on what your trade secret are, what they are, you need to, um, you know, have involvement from various aspects of your business so that you would want um, someone high up in your sales organization to contribute, someone that might be in research and development, someone that might be in operations, um, someone in finance, so that because each one of those areas might have individually their own types of trade secrets. Um, and it, the kind of initial kind of threshold question to ask is, okay, let's think about the information we have and what information would give us the biggest heartburn if our competitor had it? Yeah, right? that's good. I like that question. Yeah. yeah, that's usually a good barometer that, of something that might be a trade secret because of that aspect of trade secret definition that says it would give your competitor an um, unfair competitive advantage. Right. Well, I mean, that's kind of the heart at trade secrets is, okay, Let's what what if it walked out the door and went across the street to a competitor would, you know, make me sick to my stomach. <laughs> that's that's the that's the potential trade secret. Um, that's good. Then, that makes sense. That right? I th- And I think everyone can kind of relate to that and, and scale that to what their business is, what you know, what products or services they're involved with. There's some sticking point there for everybody. Right. Yep. And once you've done that and, you know, we, I, I frequently assist clients with kind of doing an audit of their trade secrets and their unfair competition, you know, prevention program, if you will, like, and that involves identifying things like trade secrets. And once you've, once you've done the gut check about the types of information that you, you're concerned about as being competitively dangerous, if it went out the door, then you need to actually take, take and assess are you taking those reasonable steps to maintain secrecy? Because um, oftentimes, you know, it's, oh, well, yeah, I, I hadn't really thought about how sensitive that information is that I am allowing everyone in our company to have access to, or the fact that, um, you know, I don't have a rigorous training on, you know, working remotely and, and you, you how and if you should print something, you know, if you're in an office center at a hotel or whatever. Right, like, right. It, I mean, it, in this day and age, particularly when, you know, so much of our work is done electronically and so many people are working remotely, um, this, the kind of steps that need to be taken now as far as re- reasonable steps to maintain secrecy are a lot different than 20 years ago. 20 years ago, it would be, okay, do we have shredders? <laughs> do exactly. you have locks on the door? You know, do our files have locks? Um, yeah, because things- we're mostly concerned about, you know, some sort of physical misappropriation right. of whatever we're talking about. Right. Right. As opposed to electronic. I mean, 20 years ago, we, you know, it wasn't uncommon if you were pursuing a trade secret case to actually send private investigators out to dive into the dumpsters of the alleged wrongdoers to see if you could find copies of your stuff. <laughs> exactly. Right. Exactly. We don't not do to that. Say that still couldn't be done, but sure. people are, you know, typically not in that same sure. mode. Right. Yeah. So now the, you know, in our current environment, the dumpster dive is a forensic, you know, examination of a computer. Absolutely. And so, you know, just like how we prove, how we prove our evidence has changed so to our, what we need to do to be, you know, responsible 
um, companies when it comes to uh, being good shepherds of our trade secrets. Um, that it, it's it continues to evolve, and and that's why you know partnering with with someone that knows their way around a trade secret case can be helpful in defining your trade secrets and your and your protection program, and essentially getting your house in really good shape, so that if you do end up needing to uh, litigate over your trade secrets, you you're not operating from point of weakness. Yeah, absolutely. And in that regard, I mean, the, if the first time you ever as a company think about what are our trade secrets, if, if the first time you think about that is when your attorney is helping you draft a lawsuit um, for trade secret theft because one of your employees you know, copied a bunch of files and went out the door, then that you're not necessarily in the best position because you may not have taken the steps to maintain secrecy. You may not have um, a consistent uh, consistency and within your organization. So if in- individuals are, are deposed that, you know, certainly at the high levels, it would be some consistency in what they identify as the company's trade secrets, because it's not new news, right? It's right. something that um, has been, you know, thoughtfully um, put together and, 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 you know, every other step associated with it flows, flows from the, the, that those thoughtful conversations as far as, okay, what is our trade secrets and right. what do we need to do now that we've decided that? Right. And I think, you know, an interesting thing along those lines, and you mentioned this kind of at the outset in defining what a trade secret is, I, I think what's interesting about this area is that part of what makes something a trade secret is just not the value of the information itself to the company, but it's also the steps that you took or that the company took to maintain the secrecy of the information. So it's kind of unique in that the steps you took to maintain secrecy are not only kind of self-defining, if you will, as far as kind of either making or not making something a trade secret, but they are also the means by which the information is protected from disclosure too. So I think that's kind of unique. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean... (laughs) like many things, you know, protecting your secret, your trade secrets and taking reasonable steps not only helps you um, in litigation because you've, you've done what the law says you need to do, right? but those reasonable steps should actually help protect your trade secrets from being misappropriated to begin with. Exactly. <laughs> so so exactly. It's, it's not and just ideally, a, we, yeah, I ideally. mean, that's, that's where the analysis stops and, and we never even need to get to litigation. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, another thing too, and I, I know you, you said that this trade secret podcast dovetails nicely into, you know, what my partner Ken was doing with respect to the non-compete podcast. Right. But, but it, it really does. And for, and for this reason, you know, almost every jurisdiction um, that enforces non-compete agreements requires the company that's seeking to enforce a non-compete to articulate a legitimate business related reason for the need for the restraint. And virtually every jurisdiction that enforces non-competes recognizes the protection of trade secrets as one of those legitimate protectable interests. Oh, nice. Right? So it all goes together. And if as a company, you're going to say, I need a a non-compete with respect to this individual because this individual possesses my trade secrets, you better be able to, to like stand by that argument about these are trade secrets 
by virtue of what steps you've taken to maintain secrecy and how you've treated them. So it all goes together. And, um, and it's one of the reasons why it's important to think about <laughs> prior to getting into a courtroom. Uh, yeah, I love that. That that is a really, really good point um, because you. I mean, you're exactly right, and it's something we discussed in the last couple episodes, which is kind of this legitimate business interest that has to back up, you know, even having a non-compete in the first place, and why you'd be interested in having one. And to your point, Jackie, kind of what the courts look to in terms of whether or not a non-compete is going to be enforced. Um, so yeah, that's perfect. Right. And, and another thing, um, it's for, for you know, individuals out there, be they HR department that administers non-competes or in-house counsel that takes care of um, any kind of restrictive covenants that the, agree, that the company may require of employees. This, this may not be new news, but um, it's certainly a fact that the scrutiny that's being given to non-competes as far as their enforcement is increasing by the day. And, you know, the federal government Absolutely. is definitely targeting non-competes as being something that are, are overused and trying to have federal legislation to scale those back. A number of states have, in the last few years, um, enacted statutes that make it harder to enforce non-competes. So when you, when you think about that, then you're like, well, what am I going to do to protect myself from unfair competition? And then the answer is, well, you're going to have to rely more on your ability to protect yourself on a trade secret front that, um, that I've, you know, I've invested in developing trade secrets. I've maintained their secrecy and taken reasonable steps to do so. And then, you know, from that approach, wrongful competition from a misappropriation of trade secret point right. of view, as opposed to from a contractual uh, non-compete point of view. And that's, and that's essentially, you know, what has happened in California is that, you know, anyone in California would probably um, agree that their state probably has the most robust <laughs> uh, body of trade secret case law out there compared to other states. And that's because non-competes aren't enforceable there. So right. trade secrets are what you use as a company to, to protect yourself. Yeah, I like that. So, so kind of going into that a little bit more when we're talking about, you know, what steps should a company take to protect trade secrets? Again, knowing that the most usual point of access um, of the information are your own employees. I mean, of course, you could have trade secret misappropriation involving a third party, but that's much less common because the folks that have access to the information in the first place are, are your employees that have access to the information, typically. Um so when we're talking about that, I like that kind of frame of reference. In other words, go into the trade secret protection pretending as if you don't have non-compete agreements in place, perhaps. Um, even if you do, or if or maybe let's say you have certain positions where for one reason or another, you've decided not to have a non-compete agreement in place, you know, looking at it through that prism, what does your trade secret protection look like? Exactly. Yeah, that's good. And and if you do it that way, if you do it that way, that you're like actually allowing yourself a very viable avenue from a uh, from litigation standpoint of being able to pursue a trade secret claim and or a non compete claim, um, then you you're really giving yourself the the best possible array of damages 
because for trade secret misappropriation, you can get punitive damages. Um, that's something something that you can't get for a breach of contract case. So you know it is not it is not something to take lightly. I mean, it, 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 from the standpoint of you know what your arsenal is for you know being able to protect the company and conversely you know pursue pursue. Um, any kind of wrongful competition, making sure you haven't left a trade secret claim on the table is important. Right. That makes that makes a, a lot of sense. And I, I really like that point about the different remedies too between the two. Um, on the point of kind of protecting trade secrets, you know, I know a lot of companies, um, including our clients, will use confidentiality agreements that they'll have employees sign. Um, can you speak to those a little bit in terms of you know, what typically, you know, is covered under a confidentiality agreement and maybe the interplay of confidentiality agreements with trade secret protection? Sure. Um, I see the confidentiality agreement as, you know, a very basic, let's just say very expected step um, from the standpoint of a court for the protection of trade secrets. Um, The absence of confidentiality agreements with your employees that have access to your trade secrets can be very damaging to your case. Um, Because unless you can argue some other grounds for them having a duty not not to use or disclose, such as a fiduciary duty, which most employees do not have, then you're you're really going to limit yourself in the ability to say that you took reasonable steps to maintain secrecy. So, and and you can't overuse confidentiality agreements. Confidentiality provisions, unlike non-competes or customer non-solicits, there's there's very little argument that you're overreaching. Right. Um, because right. you know, it's just say to the extent that you have confidential information which means information about our business that's not publicly known, um, you are expected not to use or disclose it. And oftentimes those provisions will have a list of exemplars, which is a really good time when you're, you're drafting those confidentiality provisions with that exemplars, a good time to sit down and think about, well, what are my, what are my trade secrets and my other confidential information? And then not without disclosing the substance, you know, you can specifically identify in your definition of confidential information, those those things, be it a particular quarterly sales report that you blast out or information that's contained in your customer database, um, that that, you know, having it all listed in your definition, you know, rebuts any arguments down the road by an employee. I didn't know that that was protected. Well, it's right here. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And everyone's on the same page there in terms of Correct. what the company is classifying right. as a trade secret. Right. Right. That makes the sense. Only, the only potential overbreath that you can get into when you're you're looking at confidentiality provisions are, you know, does it, you know, has it been drafted in a way that would have a chilling effect on someone's um, exercise of Section 7 rights under the NLRA? Um, which is uh, that's a really good point, yeah. Right, which is you know the federal statute that essentially you know gives gives and governs the you know the ability to form unions and engage in you know collective uh, measures such as you know attempting to form a union. 
Section 7 rights apply outside of the unionized um, workforce as well. Every, all employees, non-management employees have Section 7 rights, which is Absolutely. And, and right. I know a number of our clients, a number of our listeners have probably had experience with that, right. where you might get a, you know, a protected concerted activity type right. allegation, even when you are non-union. And you learn that very quickly that that still applies, you know, to your company. Right. Yeah. Correct. And so- you know, the kind of hallmark type items you want to make sure you have not included in your definition of confidential information right. would be information about salaries and compensation. Right. Uh, employees have the right to sit around the break room and talk about how much they make. <laughs> and that, that, and I know, you know, if I, I, I can always tell when a confidential uh, confidentiality provision hasn't been reviewed for a while when I see that it still contains reference to compensation information. Exactly. That is a big, big red flag. Um, and, you know, so you want to make sure that, you know, you've audited and looked at and, and updated any confidential confidentiality provisions or agreements that you have. Um, so, and there's, there's a couple other things too. I mean, when I talk about chilling, chilling, um, Employees protected rights. A good confidentiality um, agreement will make sure that employees know that you know it doesn't extend to you know any whistleblowing or reporting violations of the law. That that needs to be carved out and, and specifically said that you know this is not to be construed to prevent you from going to the EEOC or the Department of Labor, or SEC, whatever. Um, and then you know even getting more in the weeds, but, but the defend trade secret act, the federal statute has some notice language that should be included in confidentiality agreements. I was just going to go there. That that is exactly what triggered in my brain when you started going down the path of uh, the NLRA stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Can you you explain like the, the notice language that's required um, under the the federal defend trade secrets act. Sure. And yeah. not to get too much in the trade secret weeds, but you know, this is a legal podcast. So no, that's I'm good. Gonna, I'm going to go there. I'm going to go there. Yeah, absolutely. So- and and to, <laughs> and to your point, this is, I mean, this is not just, uh, you know, legal discussion. This is actually required language. That's got to be in a confidentiality agreement, right? Right. right exactly. Well, in order. Yeah. So the defend trade secret act is the federal statute that, it feels like it was enacted yesterday, but that's just because time flies. It's been in place for a few years now. Right, right. Um, but it allows a federal cause of action for theft of trade secrets. It provides that you can get a variety of damages, uh, including actual damages, attorney's fees, punitive damages, etc. However, as a company, if you want to be able to get punitive damages or attorney's fees under a Defend Trade Secret Act claim, you have to have particular notice language included in any confidentiality agreements or policies that essentially puts the employee on notice that they cannot be held um, liable for a misappropriation of trade secrets that is allegedly done in, well, that it, that a user disclosure of trade secrets that is done in the context of reporting a violation of the law um, or that is used um, in a retaliation lawsuit. The, I mean, the, and the notice language, you can say, you know, you, you have to take reasonable measures to protect the secrecy when you're, right. you know, when you're making those reporting or using it in a retaliation suit. And, you know, I've developed 
what I consider model model language that that kind of hits on all the points that I include in, in the agreements I draft. But if it, again, if it's one of those things, if you don't have that notice language in there, then you can't get punitive damages or attorney's fees. You can still sue under the statute and you can right. get your actual damages and you get injunctive relief. Right. But you're but you're leaving some of your remedies on the table if you don't include the notice language. Interestingly though, I mean the Defend Trade Secret Act does not preempt state law. So right. you can still you can bring a federal claim under the DTSA and then file a file a claim under the state statute uh, for trade secret theft. And I don't, I am not aware of any state statute, and I would be aware that would have similar notice language. So it's right. uniquely a part of the federal law. Right. So it's not, it, it's, it's, it becomes, it creates interesting conversations with clients about whether or not they want to include the notice language and make sure that they have those remedies on the table versus not including it and just planning on if they ever need to go after the attorney's fees or punitive damages, just suing under the state statute. Mm-hmm. Rolling on the state statute. Yeah, you're right. That that absolutely is interesting. It gets into kind of state versus federal remedies and, you know, maybe even client preferences in terms of where they would want to litigate a dispute like this. Right. Again, if push comes to shove and they have to litigate it, obviously we would love to not have to litigate them um, and just have our trade secrets protected, you know, period. But yeah. Okay. that That's great. Yep. Um, yeah, it's, it, when, there's, when I have those conversations with clients, it, it's, it's, Interesting for me too, because just like a lot of things when it comes to drafting agreements and and thinking about, you know, how conservative are you as a company, as a culture, how aggressive do you want to be? Right. You know, do you want do you want to include the no- some some clients don't like including the notice language because it really ups the le- legal sounding nature of the agreement, which you know a lot of companies just exactly want things really simple really easily understood and, you know, and throwing a bunch of DTSA notice language into what they're trying to make a very understandable, easy read can be something that they're just, you know, just don't really don't have much appetite for. That's a really good point. Setting aside the whole remedy issue itself. I mean, sometimes you, uh, believe it or not, when, when, when an attorney drafts a document, you want it to be able to be understood. Is that what you're (laughs) telling me? Nice. It's a nice goal. I try to keep that in mind. That is that is nice. That is a good goal. Exactly. Exactly. No, the the point is well taken though, because you know, you know, your your value predominantly in having these is have people understand them and and also correspondingly respect them. And if you're able to somehow get that message across and it works, then then maybe there is an argument to be made to not include the language. So that I mean that's yeah. Very interesting. It's just about an informed decision, yep. which, which you know requires understanding the law and the consequences of having the notice and not having the notice, and then any of associated other you know concerns like readability, understandability, simplicity, right, breadth. You know, absolutely, absolutely. And thanks so much for joining me today. And to our listeners, please join us again next week for part two of this episode. Before we sign off, I do want to make our typical request. If you like this podcast, please let us know. Or if you have ideas for topics for future episodes, please also let us know that as well. Please follow us, rate us, and leave us a written review on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts so that other folks interested in employment law can find us and follow us as well.